Our scripture reader for this morning is Sophia Baez. So Sophia, if you'll come up here and read God's word for us. We're going to take a break from the book of Genesis and uh, just focus on the resurrection and the Easter message. And we're going to see the Easter message through the eyes of Mary Magdalene. So also keep in mind that we will have question and answer session. Actually, that's the wrong phone number there. I'll put up the right number there. Um, but we are in the Gospel of John this morning. John chapter 20, verse 1. You can follow along on the screen as Sophia reads for us. If you want to, you can, can you see it from there? Yeah. All right, great. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Amen. Thank you. All right, give her a hand this morning for reading God's word. All right. If there was anybody who didn't have hope at this time, it was Mary. Before she met Jesus, she had been possessed by seven demons. She had no husband. She had no reputation. She lived in a world that was dominated by men who all rejected her. She had no hope for the future financially, spiritually, and in every way life looked really, really bleak. But then she met Jesus. But then Jesus died. So the hope that she thought she found was now gone, but we know that hope is alive. And we're going to see that through the eyes of Mary, Mary Magdalene. There's several Marys in the Bible. It was as popular as Jessica was in the 90s, right? It was a very popular name at this time. And uh, it starts off in this verse, says, Now on the first day of the week. What is the first day of the week? Sunday. Good job, y'all. Y'all were paying attention in elementary school. And the first day of the week, this is so important because this is when we celebrate the resurrection. 
There are some people called Seventh-day Adventists, and there's all kinds of Seventh-day groups that believe that worship should still take place on Saturday. In fact, there's even a popular teaching going around now. This will blow your mind. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists teach that the mark of the beast is Sunday worship. That basically y'all are part of following the Antichrist because you're worshiping here on Sunday and not yesterday. Let me tell you that, that, that that's not biblical at all. It's, it's perverting scripture in a big way. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we say, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together, talking about the disciples, to break bread, and break bread there means what? Communion, right. They meant on the first day of the week to take communion. This is when they worshiped. Paul talked with them. Paul taught the scriptures on the first day of the week. You saw that up until this point, worship was on Saturdays, the Sabbath, but God went from being the last thing in our week to being the first thing of the week because of the resurrection. You also see in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul tells them on what day? The first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside Basically set aside an offering as God has prospered you. So you see communion on the first day of the week, offerings on the first day of the week. You see this pattern throughout from, from then on in the New Testament. And in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10, the last book of the Bible, John says, I was in the Spirit, not on the Sabbath, but on the Lord's Day. He's filled with the Spirit of God on the Lord's Day, which was what became the name of the first day of the week. It became known as the Lord's Day, the day of worship. So, it's on the first day of the week that Mary goes to the tomb, and she goes early. I imagine she probably didn't sleep at all, or didn't sleep much, and she gets up early. She wants to do for Jesus' body what had not been done, because they were in such a hurry to get him down off the cross. She wanted to pay respects and anoint his body. Jews did not embalm. They just simply anointed. They had already wrapped the body, but they wanted to anoint it out of way of paying respect. Also to keep the odor away while others would pay their respects and things like that. But they couldn't do it previously because of, of, the, of the Sabbath. In Luke, he gives us a clue about this. It says, also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. There were several women who had been healed. Mary Magdalene was one of them. And in fact, seven demons had gone out of her. So Mary, in fact, John says Mary goes to the tomb. But the other gospels tell us that Mary wasn't alone. But just because it mentions Mary only in John doesn't mean that's a contradiction, okay? If I say, hey, I saw Tammy at the grocery store the other day, it does, just because I don't mention Isaiah and Caitlin were there doesn't mean they weren't there also. I'm just emphasizing the person that I was talking to. If, if the Bible had said only Mary went to the tomb, then you'd have a problem. But there's no problem here with this, with there being several women at the tomb. Now let me ask you a question. If you were to make up a religion, which... In colleges today, they, that's what they say Christianity is. It's just a made-up religion that Jesus was just a rabbi, but who became legendary. And as centuries went on, it went from being just a good rabbi to, to being a great rabbi, to being God, to being risen from the dead. If you were to make up a religion, which they accused Peter and Paul and John and Mark of doing, would you start with a woman with mental illness that was rejected by society as your first witness? No, you would not. In fact, this was in a day when women and shepherds had no testimony in court. Their testimony was not credible. And yet Jesus chooses as the first witness of Christianity, of the resurrection, to be a woman who most people wouldn't even respect her testimony. Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus picks the lowest of the low. Jesus picks the underdogs. 
Jesus picks the full, what the world calls foolish people to exalt and show his wisdom. And so Jesus, Christianity started this way because that's what happened. They, they weren't making up a religion. Think about other made-up religions. Do they talk about how Buddha made all kinds of mistakes? Do they talk about how Muhammad made all kinds of mistakes? No. But yet the disciples look like knuckleheads throughout the Bible. I mean, Peter's rebuked, called, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And this is supposed to be like the founding father of the church from a human standpoint. And yet it shows all their flaws. But it shows, in contrast, that Jesus has none. And so if the disciples were making up a religion, they would have picked someone better than Mary Magdalene. And they wouldn't have told about all the times that they messed up. But the reason the New Testament tells us those things is because that's exactly what happened. It wasn't a made-up religion. Let's talk about who Mary is, is not, okay? There's a lot of legend and myth surrounding Mary that's not true. First of all, she's not the woman taken in adultery. There was a pope in 345 AD that connected the two, but the Bible doesn't connect the two. It, it would have said that, uh, I think, if, if that was the case. She was possessed by demons, but I don't believe she was the woman taken in adultery. Um, and also, she's not the wife of Jesus. There's some pagan philosophers who tried to destroy the testimony of Christ by saying Jesus left and moved to France and married Mag Mary Magdalene. And again, no evidence for that. They, they, people will repeat that lie over and over again with no manuscript evidence, and yet they'll reject the testimony of the Bible, which has tens of thousands of manuscripts that, showing that the Word of God is perfect. But people believe what they want to believe. So Mary Magdalene, she came to the tomb while it was still yet dark. It was right before sunrise, and it's Sunday morning, and she's uh, coming to this dark scene. And it was six days earlier that Mary had just anointed Jesus' feet with precious ointment and tears while he was alive. Now she's going to anoint his, uh, his whole body again with precious ointment and a different type of tears. Before, six days earlier, the, t the tears were because of repentance. She was a sinful woman who was now thankful that she found forgiveness in Christ. Now the tears are, my Savior, where did he go? Why, why, what happened? I thought he was going to be the one. And it's a different type of tears in this situation. But now her and other ladies are anointing him and ointment with a different kind of tears in this situation. But we know that hope will be alive here in just a moment. And, and they will find that out. When she got there, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. It was interesting, one of the other gospels tells us that on the way there, they're like, wait a minute, what about the stone? Who's going to roll that away for us? Because that stone was designed to be super heavy. This is not the exact picture of it, but this is a typical tomb with a stone. A stone would be on a higher elevated plane, and then there would be a cut uh, shape below that one person could roll the stone in with a wedge, but once it got down there, getting it back out took the work of several men. And these women were like, how are we going to do that? This, this, the tomb has been sealed. One of the funniest statements in the Bible is when Pontius Pilate, they tell him, hey, this guy said he was going to rise from the dead. You need to send armed soldiers there to seal the tomb so that they can't take his body away. And Pilate says one of the funniest statements in the Bible, he goes, Seal it to the best of your ability. <laughs> he knew that, I, I don't think he was, he actually consciously knew what he was saying, but this, this idea that they couldn't seal the tomb for real because Jesus was going to be let out. Uh, of course, Jesus went through it. We'll talk about that more in a second. But Mary, she ran from there. She was so excited, she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciples. 
It's interesting she, it, that Peter's mentioned first here. Why do you think that is? What did Peter just get done doing about 65 hours prior <laughs> denying the Lord? How many times did Peter deny the Lord? Three times. Man, do you feel like a failure sometimes? Peter, three strikes, and he's out. <laughs> so he thought, but not with Jesus. Jesus is not going by the rules of baseball. He's going by the rules of grace. And he's going to forgive Peter. And she's going to run back and tell him and all the other disciples. And, and it says, and the one whom Jesus loved. Who is that? It's John. We think so anyway. Because John's the writer of this gospel, and he's trying to be humble, so he doesn't want to mention himself by name. Um, it says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Now, Mary still doesn't realize this is a resurrection. She's saying someone has taken him. And she says, and we, no, she didn't say I, she said we. She's conferring that there were other women there with him, so there's no contradiction there. She said that we don't know where they've laid him. Why does she not consider he's resurrected? Why does that not occur? I mean, it wasn't like Jesus didn't talk about it. In Matthew 16, it says from that time, talking about a few weeks prior to this happening, Jesus began to show his disciples. Not, I mean, he was demonstrating it clearly that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, and he did, from the elders, these religious people, and the chief priests and the, chief priests and the scribes, and be killed on the third day, be raised. Jesus didn't mention this just once or twice. It's recorded five times that he taught this, that I'm going to Jerusalem. I am going to die. I'm going to tell you who's going to kill me. I'm going to tell you exactly what eight things they're going to do to me. They're going to beat me, scourge me, and mock me, and make fun of me, and crown me, and all these things. I'm going to list all these things, and I'm going to die. But on the third day, I'm going to be raised from the dead. I mean, he made this abundantly clear. Now, my theory on this is, they're like, is he speaking in parables again? <laughs> is this another one of those hidden stories that we just can't seem to get? What's going on here? But for some reason, we don't know exactly why, Maybe just because God had not taken the scales off their eyes, they did not understand and they didn't believe. In Matthew 17, verse 9, it says, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. He, he talks about even where it's going to happen. And then he goes on in verse 22, it says, they will kill him and he will be raised again on the third day. And they were greatly distressed by this. Matthew chapter 20, verse 18, it says, he will be crucified and raised again on the third day. No mystery that Jesus is talking about here, but the question is, when Mary sees an empty tomb, why does it not connect? You know, for a lot of people, it doesn't connect. You and I both know people who have heard the gospel over and over again, and it's just like the light switch never seems to come on. Well, first of all, it's because faith is a gift of God. God grants us the faith to receive Him. God opens our eyes. That's why we need to pray for people who are not saved, <clears throat> that God would remove the scales from their eyes, I remember when I was nine years old, and I first time I'd heard the gospel, and God took the scales off my eyes, and I was like, wow. Now, think about that. I'm only nine. I wasn't strung out on crack. <laughs> I didn't just get out of jail. <laughs> you know, I, I, I didn't have a string of broken relationships or anything like that. There, it wasn't like I had some dark past. But yet, even at nine years old, I knew I was a sinner. I knew I needed a Savior. And when I heard the gospel Christ, it, a man loved me so much that died for me and took all my sin upon him, and I put my trust in him, that God had become flesh and became my Savior. And it was like my eyes were opened up, and it was like the Word of God became alive. Everything became new. 
Just like 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man is in Christ, behold, the old is passed away. Behold, all things become new. Has that happened to you? Or is it just like, oh, I, I understand all this information, but Mary, it, it, it didn't click. It, this wasn't happening. In fact, the Pharisees said, Sir, we were, the Pharisees got it, but they didn't trust Christ, but they, they understood the message. They said, Sir, talking to Pilate, <clears throat> we remember how this imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. They remembered it. And it says, Therefore, order that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. You know what the Pharisees did just then? First of all, they, had, they paid attention. Jesus, Jesus taught so much about the resurrection that it got to the Pharisees. <clears throat> they knew what he was predicting. So they're like, Pilate, man, you need to go send soldiers to guard the tomb so that the disciples don't steal the body away. You know what the Pharisees just did right there? They took away the number one argument against the resurrection, that the disciples stole the body away. No, they didn't. The Pharisees made sure of it. They had guards there to make sure the disciples couldn't do that. <clears throat> this whole idea of, of a man coming back to life, you, you see, as cultural snobs, we look back in time and say, people back then, they weren't that smart. We're much smarter now. Nothing could be farther from the truth, Okay. They didn't have computers and all the things that you have. I mean, they knew facts without computers, okay? There was many ways that they were smarter than us. They built a lot of things they built without tools and things, the tools that we have. So we look back in time and think people were dumber than we were. And that, that's just, that's cultural snobbery. There wasn't anybody expecting a resurrection. Nobody. Greeks believed that a resurrection of the body was the worst, last thing you want. They believe, because of Plato and other philosophers, that your body is nasty, filthy, and you can't wait to die to get out of this body and go be a spirit being somewhere. The Romans kind of adopted the same Greek philosophy. They believed that the human body was to be something you wanted to get out of and leave, and, and that eternity and paradise somewhere was to be a spirit being somewhere out there. Even Jews who did believe in a resurrection thought it would not happen now, over and over again, they were taught in the Old Testament that at the end of time, at the end of time, there will be a general resurrection of the righteous, but not now. So there wasn't a bunch of superstitious people going, oh, well, he rose from the dead. They were like, what? He actually rose from the dead? That was the last thing that they were thinking about, and that was the last thing on Mary's mind because she wasn't grasping the teaching of Christ and thinking it would be now. <clears throat> in fact, you remember um, Mary and Martha when Lazarus died? Jesus says, I am the resurrection of life. And she goes, well, yeah, I know, Lord, at, at the end that we'll all be resurrected. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to raise your brother now. I'm going to resuscitate him. And says, and so she was stooping and looked into and saw the linen cloth lying there. I'm sorry, this is the disciples that ran ahead. They saw, they saw. Now, notice the word saw there twice. The first time saw means just to take in visual perception. The second saw is the word theoreto means to wait a minute, theorize. Where we got the word theorize? Wait a minute, what happened here? And to understand. It's like when I say to you, do you see what I'm saying? I'm not asking if the words are actually, you can see them, they're invisible, but I'm asking, do you comprehend? Is it clicking with you? You see, John just saw everything, but Peter's like, oh, I know what's going on here. It says they saw the linen claws lying there. <clears throat> what's interesting about the linen claws if you, if you do like a Google image search about the tomb, you'll see like the linen cloth like knocked down, like just laying all over the place. Like someone just 
like, you know, when your kids get undressed and they throw all their clothes on the floor, right? That's not it at all. <clears throat> they had wrapped the body meticulously. They had it not, they were, and they were supposed to anoint it with oils, but all this, like this. And so when Jesus came out of that, it looked like a cocoon. You know, like a, a butterfly leaves a cocoon and it just leaves that shell there. And then it says Simon Peter came following and went into the tomb and he saw, he realized what the linen cloths mean by the way that they were left there. And then there's the face cloth. See, they'd wrap the body, then they'd wrap the head to make the jaw stay shut on a dead person out of respect. And then they would just lay a cloth over the face of the deceased. So the body's wrapped like a cocoon or a mummy. The head's wrapped this way. And then there's a face cloth. Some translations say a napkin. Not really the best thing. You think a napkin, you think wiping your mouth. In fact, there's an internet story talking about how, you know, when someone would leave that they would fold it like to say, I'm not done eating yet. I'm coming back. Don't believe any of that. That, that, That's not a good story. (laughs) Anyway, but it was folded up and it was set in a place separate. So here, let's say this is the, 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 the rock on which the body is laid that they would cut out of the wall. And here from foot to shoulders is the cocoon wrapping just sitting there and like collapsed. And here's the, the, the part around the jaw collapsed. But over here, the napkin is set and folded like a cloth set on a side. Like someone deliberately did that. Like the body escaped. but like So Jesus escapes from it, but then he takes it off and goes... And takes his time to do that, and they're like, "Wait a minute! This is not a like a this is like a um, a forensics operation here. What happened here? The body wasn't torn apart like someone unraveled it. It was like he left it without being uh, let out of it. He just went through it, and then he took the time to fold up the face cloth. So then the other disciple, this is John, who reached the tomb first. John, even though he won't mention his name, he will brag about how he's faster than Peter. He reached the tomb first. He also went in. And now he saw and believed. When he first got there, he looked. He's like, what? I don't know what happened here. I can see the evidence, but I don't understand. Peter sees it and understands. John goes in and looks a little farther. He's a little bit slower than Peter, and he believes. He believes in the resurrection of Christ. I believe there's people that are here this morning that may see all the evidence of the Christianity, but they really don't believe. They, they're like John, like, hey, okay, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, and this is the Bible, and this is the church. And I haven't connected the dots that, hey, I'm a sinner, and I'm going to spend eternity spiritually dead without Christ unless I put my faith in this. Have you connected the dots? Have you been like John where you see and believe? The face cloth. Interesting aside here. Anybody know what this is called? The Shroud of Turin, okay? Now, as evangelicals or Protestants, whatever you want to label us, we have kind of shied away from this for centuries because the Catholic Church has so heavily embraced this. And I I grew up Catholic. We learn about the Shroud and things like that. And because the Catholics have so heavily embraced it, we're like, well, anything the Catholics would do, we don't want to believe in. But one philosopher has put this this way. He did a lot of research on this. And he, his conclusion was this, that if this is not the shroud of Jesus, then someone else rose from the dead. And looking at the evidence, I, I, I think I've come to that conclusion. I believe this is almost like because of the glorified body, like almost like flash photography, burnt an image into the face cloth. Now, do we put our whole faith in this? No. I mean, this is just extra biblical. If this is true, great. If it's not true, it doesn't matter. We know what the Bible says, Jesus is risen from the dead. 
But I believe that there's a lot of evidence, if you want to do a little research on your own, that says that this really is the, the, the photo image of the resurrection of Christ. The linen and the face cloth, they mean something. And again, here's the picture of the cocoon. This is the best image I can come up with, but this is what they would have seen. And wait, wait a minute. Here's the wrappings of a dead body, but there's no dead body. How did he get out of that? He didn't wiggle out through the top. And he folded the face cloth over here. There's, that's the evidence that they saw that made Peter and John, he resurrected. He is the risen Lord. And it all started rushing back in their minds. Wait a minute, he taught us over and over again. It wasn't just a parable. It wasn't just a metaphor. He literally rose from the dead. And he is the king. Has it clicked for you? Have you accepted Christ as your Lord and your Savior? Has it clicked for you? Some people teach that what's called the swoon theory. The swoon theory is that Jesus was badly beaten. He was in really bad shape. And on the cross, he passed out. He was just knocked unconscious. And so Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took the body. They laid him in the tomb. They wrapped him in everything. And Jesus took a really good nap for a few days. And he's like, ah, I feel much better. I'm going to get out of these claws. I'm going to roll a 280-pound stone away by myself out of this decline. And I'm going to walk out and be fine. Do you know there's people that still teach this bizarre theory? I mean, it makes no sense. It shows that people will believe things with no evidence or little or no evidence and not believe what the Bible says is clearly taught. How many of you ever heard of a pastor on the radio, J. Vernon McGee? You ever heard of him? Okay, he, if you listen to him on in KHCB, he's on there. Somebody he has a really thick southern accent. But uh, he does a question and answer session at the end of his program. And he, he's deceased now. But one lady wrote in a question for him to answer. And the woman wrote, uh, Jay Birmingham, and she said, Our preacher said that on Easter, Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you say, Pastor McGee? And Pastor McGee replied, Dear, dear sister, beat your pastor. Beat your pastor with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross. Hang him in the sun for six hours. Run a spear through his heart. Wrap his body and anoint him. And put him in an airless tomb for three days. And then see what happens. It's pretty good advice there. For people who believe that, it's just, again, people will choose to do anything to believe rather than Jesus really rose from the dead. Some people believe that the disciples took the body. Again, Four armed Roman soldiers against a bunch of disciples who were scared to death. Does that add up to you? I mean, Pilate made sure his, his political career was invested on that nobody takes his body out. And so he made sure around the clock, armed guards took turns watching that. You think the disciples stood a chance of beating up four armed soldiers and then rolling away the tomb? And again, if the if the disciples took away the body, would they take away the body of their Lord naked? Why would they unwrap the body to take it away? And if his enemies took the body, why would they unwrap the body and take it away? And how did the enemies get around the, the, the Roman soldiers? And why would they try to take the body away to prove what they were hoping would never, ever come true? All these theories against the resurrection are false. John chapter 20, verse 9 says, For as yet they did not understand the Scriptures. Up until this point, the reason things didn't click is they didn't understand God's Word. Romans 10 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. 
Your lost friends, your lost family, you know what they need? They need scripture. They need, they need the Bible. They need the gospel to understand. And then they can understand the resurrection. They didn't understand the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. They all prophesied that Jesus must rise from the dead. So then the disciples, because they didn't understand, what did they do? They just went home. They just went home like nothing had ever happened. The greatest historical event of all the earth and the whole planet has just happened. Eh, guess we'll go home. It says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she kept, she wept, she stood, stooped and looked into the tomb. It still hasn't clicked for her yet. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain and one at the head and one at the feet. Two angels. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Right? Remember when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden? How many angels had flaming swords to make sure they could not come back in? It was, it was two angels. You see, the two angels signify, here is the presence of God. Adam and Eve, you've been kicked out. You disobeyed. You rebelled against God. So you're now no longer to have access to the presence of God and have that wonderful relationship with him. <clears throat> and then the children of Israel were given the Ark of the Covenant. And there was two angels on either side of that showing here's the presence of God. This is called the mercy seat. This is where the blood is applied of the sacrifice. And here's where God's glory dwells. And you can't have access to this. Only a priest coming in through sacrifice through the blood can have access to this. <clears throat> and then here at the tomb, and this is the best picture I can find, there's an angel on either side and said, hey, here's the presence of God, but guess what? Come on in, Mary. You see, before, flaming swords kept everybody out, kept everybody away. Only a priest could have access. But now, in the New Testament, everybody who has their faith in Jesus Christ, you guess what we're called? We are a priesthood of believers. We all have access to the holy place, to the presence of God. Believer, whenever you want, you can go into the presence of God with prayer and with the word of God and be in the holy place. And someday, some glorious day, we're all going to be in the presence. We're all going to dwell between the two angels. We're, isn't that what talks about the throne of God? There's angels on either side. And so that will be the holy place that the presence of the Lord Jesus will be with us. The angels ask a great question. Woman, why are you weeping? Think about it. Why? He told you he was going to rise from the dead. He told you why he would rise from the dead. He would die for your sins. Mary, everything that you've ever done wrong, it's forgiven. Mary, your hope of living again, it's taken care of. Really, what is there, what is there to be crying about, at least at this point in time, we are seeing an empty tomb. And then having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. This is the second time in the Gospels we see Jesus talking to people, but they don't know it's him. And again, we don't, it, in one passage it says he veiled himself. So Jesus is kind of not letting them see it spiritually. Maybe that's the case here. Maybe it's her unbelief at the time. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Great question. Whom are you seeking? See, the problem with the reason she's weeping is who she's seeking. She's not looking for a living Jesus. She's looking for a dead Jesus. She's looking to wrap a dead body. She's looking for the wrong Jesus. She's supposing him to be the gardener. Now, gardener, we think of gardener as someone who plants flowers. This is like a, uh, someone who cares for a cemetery. They move bodies around. They move stones. They move headstones. They take care of everything in the graveyard. Maybe some flowers, too. 
But don't think of it as that way. This is a job, person whose job is taking care of the cemetery. So that's why she said, well, if you've carried him away, because that's your job, sometimes you move dead bodies or whatever, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Me, a 150-pound lady, is going to grab this 195, six-foot-tall man and I'm going to carry his body away. She was very motivated here, wasn't she? She really thought this was going to happen. Jesus asks her questions, and that's, that's a great thing to do. You know someone is hurting right now? Sometimes we want to say, well, don't do this and don't do that, and we give all kinds of advice and we start quoting Scripture when really one of the best things we can do is ask questions. Isn't that what God did for Adam and Eve? Adam, where are you? What have you done? Who told you? And of course, does God know the answer to all these questions? Of course he does. He asks the questions to get Adam and to get Eve to realize where they're at spiritually. He asks Cain, Cain, he says, Cain, why are you so angry? And Cain, if you do what's right, won't you be okay? And he, Jonah, the same thing. He asks questions, you know, about why won't you go to Nineveh? Why, why are you in the belly of a whale? He's just asking questions is a great thing. And he does the same thing here for Mary Magdalene, asks questions. Jesus said to her, Mary, and when Jesus spoke her name, she recognized him. And I believe this is a picture of salvation. I believe that God calls you by name and that you realize, wow, the, the Savior of the world wants me. He wants a relationship with me and he calls her by name. She's used to for three years hearing him say her name. You know, there's certain people when they say your name, it means so much more. You know, when that one that you love or a child, when they say your name. And when she heard the voice of her Savior, everything came to light. She turned and said, Rabboni, which means teacher. And that's not my parentheses. That's what's in the text. Jesus said to her, and so she falls down his feet. She hugs him, and maybe she hugs him around the shoulders. Maybe she hugs him around the ankles. We really don't know. I want to believe it's around the ankles, but I'm not sure. And she, he says, don't cling to me. He's like, okay, hugging, hugging, hugging. Okay, I, I really need to go. Don't, don't hold on to me here. She was so glad that he was back physically. But here he explains that there's more going on here than you realize. He said, For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, what's that about? Well, Jesus is going to take his sacrifice to the, to the ultimate holy of holies and apply his blood to the altar there so that the Father can see and be satisfied and forgive all of our sins. He says, so that works yet to be done. Now, some people think, oh, don't touch me because I'm holy. It's not that kind because Jesus, when he saw the disciples, what did he say? Hey, touch me. Touch me. Touch me. It wasn't that kind of situation. He's saying, Mary, you're holding on to me physically. I'm glad that you're, you, you're glad that I'm here, but let me tell you something. I'm going to be here in a much bigger way. Right now, you can follow me around physically, but if I ascend to my Father, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, and instead of just be on the outside so you can be near me, I'm going to be on the inside so I'll be with you everywhere. And that's what we have right now. And when we get to heaven, guess what? We get both. We get Jesus' physical presence and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So Jesus went and showed himself to disciples. Who was it that said, unless I see the, 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 the scar on his side? Thomas, right? We call him Doubting Thomas. And so Thomas says, unless I put my finger in there. So I guess maybe he literally did. Jesus shows him his side. And Jesus said there, don't cling for I have ascended. He said, I go to my father. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to my brothers and say to them. Now, he's sending her. What is the big word in the Bible for a sent one? An apostle. So guess who the first apostle is of the resurrection? 
Mary, a woman. So when people tell you Christianity suppresses women, women, that's the last thing. Jesus picks as his first witness of the resurrection, a woman, the first apostle to be sent with the messages of a woman. He exalts women in every way. And Mary Magdalene went and she announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I would love to have been there. I'm sure her enthusiasm was more than she can contain. And and, And that he had said to her these things. She told him the whole story of everything. She told them that hope was alive. All their hopes had been dashed to pieces, but now their hope is alive because hope is not just a concept, it's a person, and Jesus Christ was alive. Let me give you some, for those of you who may be watching online or maybe you're someone here and you're just not really sure this really happened. You think, oh, Christians, every year they celebrate the resurrection. By the way, we celebrate it every Sunday. We just kind of make a bigger deal of it once a year uh, at that time of year when it happened. But Christians celebrate this, but some people say, well, I believe Jesus rose in spirit, and it's a good concept, you know, don't give up on hope. But I'm here to tell you that, no, he physically rose from the dead, just as he predicted. And let me give you some historical evidence for this. Number one, Jesus' empty tomb. There's so many people, especially even today, that hate Jesus. They hate Christianity, that if they could find his dead body, if they could find his skeleton, if they could find his tomb, they would have by now. That would be the, the linchpin and the death knell for Christianity if they could find the bones and the tomb of Jesus, one or the other. But they haven't. Anybody who has ever passed away that's famous, you know where they live, right? Everybody knows where Elvis is buried, right? People know where George Washington's tomb is. People know where all kinds of people, Muhammad, Buddha, all that. We know where their tombs are because people worship their tombs. They were like, oh, there's where that famous person was. In the first century, nobody even talked about Jesus' tomb because there wasn't one. There's not even, that. Uh, there, nobody even, that's why today if you go to visit the tomb of Jesus, there's like four of them in Israel. We don't really know which one is the right one because nobody knew. Now people, whoever wants to make the most money off of tourism will say, this is the one. Okay, But nobody knows which one is the actual tomb of Jesus. The second thing is Jesus' post-mortem appearances. How many days did Jesus walk the earth after his resurrection? Forty days. That's a long time. Forty days to be walking around telling hundreds of witnesses. And you read in the Gospels where they name the people. So that Paul and Peter, who named people and said that these people were witness to resurrection, you say, is that true? It mentions here Phoebe. I'm going to go talk to Phoebe. Phoebe, did you really see the resurrection? Yes, I did. In fact, I was in Jerusalem and he was walking around and we got to touch his, his nail-scarred hands. Really? Would you stake your life on that? Yes. And tens of thousands of Christians lost their lives because they, they know, they could not deny what their eyes had seen. There was also a very short time frame between actual events and eyewitness claims. Now, like everything else in that day, everything was oral tradition. People memorized stories to tell, and they told these stories over dinner and over bonfires and all kinds of things. They told the story. But as the disciples got older, you know what? They're thinking, we better write this down because we can't just go around the world just telling everybody. We need to record this. But people say, oh, this was recorded hundreds of years later. No, it wasn't. The Apostle Paul wrote about the, the accounts of the resurrection of Christ and listed witnesses less than 30 years after it happened. Okay, So the, the, many of the disciples wrote it when they were older, John and Mark. They were young men traveling around telling the story, but then they got older and they're like, we're going to pass away, we need to write down the story. There's a movie out now about the story of Nike and the founder of Nike. 
and how when he was in his 20s, he started selling tennis shoes out of the trunk of his car. He's now 70-something, and he's written a book about his life. Now, wait a minute. How many years passed from the beginning when he started Nike to when the movie comes out? About 50 years. Is anybody doubting the accuracy of the movie or the book? No, he's still alive. He's telling his story. He just decided to write the book later, and yet people will criticize the Bible for that and say it's not true because so many decades passed, and it was just decades, not centuries, between these resurrection accounts. And then there's the extraordinary transformation of the apostles. Peter, who when asked by a little girl, aren't you one of his disciples? Oh no, not me. (laughs) Scared to death of a little girl, now is preaching after the resurrection before thousands and saying, hey, Christ rose from the dead and you guys crucified him. And they're like, we're going to kill you. Shut up. And he's like, no, I don't care. Bring it. And eventually they did crucify him. In fact, they crucified him upside down because he didn't feel like he was worthy to be crucified the same direction as his Savior. And Thomas, doubting Thomas, travels to southern India all along the way preaching the gospel. And to this day, there are churches in southern India. Southern India is more Christian than northern India. Northern India is primarily Hindu and Muslim. Southern India to this day is still changed by Thomas, one man who saw the resurrection. You think he would travel all around the world preaching the gospel and and even die for it if this was not true? If they tried to make up a religion, they did a really sorry job. There's also plentiful early references to Jesus' resurrection in the apostles' letters. So not not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the other letters in the Bible attest that everything is about the resurrection of the Lord written within decades. The four Gospels are much closer in time to Jesus' life than are any other ancient testimonies, both religious figures like Muhammad, Buddha. You know, you know when they wrote the Quran? 370 years after Muhammad died. That's a big gap. Why don't they criticize the Quran like they do the Bible? They don't, because the Bible is true and the Quran is not. That's why. Even things they wrote about Buddha. Hundreds of years later, Confucius, hundreds of years later, even secular fig- figures like Socrates and Caesar, all written hundreds of years later, but nobody doubts their veracity, but yet the Bible's put under a different microscope and criticized separately, even though it was only a matter of decades, not centuries. And then one of the things you can't refute, all historians, Christian and non-Christian, you cannot deny the rapid explosion of Christianity throughout the world after the resurrection. It spread like wildfire without an internet, without a printing press, without any radio or television. The gospel spread throughout the whole world quickly, within a matter of decades. It changed the world all over the place. And then number 10, no other religion has had even a fraction of the positive impact on the planet. Hospitals were created by Christianity. Orphanages were created by Christianity. Even universities at one time were Christian Now they're so far anti-Christian, it's not even funny. But all this happened because of the resurrection. Christians went everywhere around the world because they saw a resurrected Jesus and they changed the world around them. This is proof that hope is alive. That that Jesus Christ literally did rise from the dead and you and I have a hope for eternity. 1 Thessalonians says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And asleep is a nice way of saying what? dead, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. It does not say you do not grieve. Uh, So be praying for Amanda Avila. She's with her grandmother right now. She's been very close to her. She was her caregiver for a long time, and she's supposed to pass away any time now. Maybe already has. 
And Amanda's going to be grieving. She's going to miss her grandmother. But the difference between the way Amanda will grieve and others grieve is different. When you and I grieve the loss of a loved one, we have hope. We're still sad. We still shed many tears. It still takes a long time. The Bible's not saying don't grieve. It just says do not grieve as those who have no hope. Because we know that our hope is alive. And it says, here's why. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Let me ask you a question. I'm not asking you, do you believe that it happened? John could see that it happened. But Peter's like, oh, I know what happened here. And, and then John and Peter both later saw and believed. Have you put your trust in this event? Does death scare you? If a doctor came to you and said, you know what? You're stage four. And there's really not much we can do but kind of minimize the pain. What's going through your mind? What would be going through your heart at that time? Would you be full of fear and scared? Or would you be, man, I'm going to miss my family, but I can't wait to see Jesus. I know I'm going to see him because I put my faith in the fact that he rose from the dead. I can too, because all my hope is in him. It goes on to say, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. All the ones you know who have passed on, who know Christ, they will rise, and then we will rise with them. The resurrection means that our enemy, death, has been defeated. The resurrection means a reunion with your loved ones if they knew Christ and you know Christ. The resurrection means no more sadness, no more depression. The resurrection means no more sickness. The resurrection means no more politics. Amen? <laughs> looking forward to the end of that. And the resurrection means a new body. I'm looking forward to that one as well. That we will be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. We will be like Christ. We'll still be recognizable. Anybody know who this is? Johnny, yeah, somebody, Johnny Erickson Tata. And she has a great testimony. At age 19, her and some friends were swimming at a, a pond in a swimming hole, and she dove in, and she drove into a dark area which she couldn't see, and her head hit a rock and broke her neck. And from age 19 up until recently, she'd been paralyzed from the waist down. Now, because of technology, she has some things that control her arms, and she can actually voice control her arms, which is really interesting. But here's what she says about the resurrection. So she's talking about someday she's going to see the Lord. And she says, I know what I'm about to say isn't exactly biblically accurate, but this is what I kind of imagined when I, when I stand before the Lord. Lord, do you see that wheelchair right there? Well, you were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that wheelchair was a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you for what you did in, that, in my life through that wheelchair. And now you can send that wheelchair to hell if you want. <laughs> That's the way she feels about her wheelchair. Of course, she explains that the theology is not exactly right, but someday we're going to be set free from all those things. The resurrection means no more suffering children. Do you realize how many kids are kidnapped every week around the globe and being funneled into human trafficking and sex trafficking and, and being raped repeatedly over and over again? That I'm looking forward to Jesus coming if for no other reason for that one. The resurrection means no more crime, no more war. 
the resurrection means no more anxiety, pain, or addiction. The resurrection means eternal loving relationships. There will be no more sad goodbyes. The resurrection means true joy and happiness. And most of all, the resurrection means forever with the one we love most. And who is that? Jesus. That's what I'm looking forward to most about heaven. Jesus literally did rise again from the dead. And this is our blessed hope. You see, death, according to George Herbert, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. He's, we're just temporarily in the grave. So let's learn some lessons from Mary. Mary Magdalene, the lowest of the low as far as people thought. Life had no hope until Jesus. What we can learn from her is that when life doesn't make sense, she moves towards Jesus. She didn't run away from him and say, why am I having all these problems? And I'm going to walk away from everything Jesus ever taught me. No, she moved towards Jesus. Are you going through a difficult time? Is life becoming excruciating for you? Don't move away from Jesus. Do like Mary did, move towards Jesus. Number two, she doesn't recognize him because she's looking for the wrong Jesus. She was looking for a dead Jesus. She should have been looking for a resurrected Jesus. There's people today that are looking for a Jesus, but it's not the right Jesus. They're looking for a sissy, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus that couldn't hurt a fly, loves everything, is okay with everything, and that's not the right Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. Some people are looking for a Jesus that's like a genie in a bottle. And like, oh, well, if Jesus will do this for me and do this for me, then I'll believe in him. And I know, I know people who've said, well, I tried Christianity, but then I prayed and, and I asked for my loved one to be healed and they didn't. So Jesus didn't do what I wanted, so I don't believe in that anymore. As if Jesus is some cosmic vending machine that if you put in the right things, you get what you want. We don't come to Christ to get what we st stuff. We come to Christ to get him and, and to get what all that goes with him. Some people are looking for just the cool Jesus, you know. Hey, you can do whatever you want. It's all right with me. You can love whoever you want to love and do whatever you want to do. It's all cool. There's no judgment here. And that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible hated your sin so much that he didn't want you to be punished for it. So he took your sins upon himself and died. That's the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus didn't just okay sin and act like that's no big deal. He suffered the ultimate penalty for our sin. And not only did he suffer and die for your sin and for mine, he rose again. He came back to life. He walked the earth for 40 days. In the Bible, there's listed by name over 500 witnesses. I'm sorry, there's five, over 500 witnesses. Many are mentioned by name. There's other historical proofs. There's Josephus, who was not a Christian, who, wrote his, who was paid to document history. There's Tacitus, one of the Roman historians, all talked about a resurrected Christ. And they weren't even Christians. They recorded it in history. Number three, even though she can't see him, she, Jesus is right there with her, coming to meet her. That could be true of you this morning. Maybe you don't know Christ, but let me tell you, he is right there near you. Acts chapter 17 says, and he made, God made from one man, who's that one man? Adam. He made every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, God chose what time period you would live in 
and what part of the earth that you would live in, and here's why, that you should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from who? Each one of us. Feel like God is far from you? Mary did too. She was right there behind Him. She just thought He was the gardener. Number four, doubt's okay. You should go ahead and, and doubt your beliefs. I'm actually encouraging, if you're like young people, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, you're like, hey, I've been taught this my whole life, but is this really true? I have no problem with you doubting your doubts. That's okay. Even doubt your beliefs. Question them. Put them under the microscope. But also doubt your doubts, as Tim Keller says. What is the motivation for your doubt? How many of you know someone who's kind of going through a deconstructing period right now? Anybody know someone like that? I have someone in my family, very close to me, that's going through that. You know what's interesting about every single person I know? There's a, a young man I know that grew up, I've known him since he was born, grew up in our Awana clubs at a previous church, the whole works, and now he's openly on the internet talking about how he doesn't believe all this, even after he went to seminary and everything. Every single person I know that's deconstructing has a sexual motivation. It's so funny that at the same time that they're living with their boyfriend or experimenting with bisexuality or experimenting, can think about leaving their wife or whatever it is, oh yeah, by the way, I don't think the Bible is true anymore. What kind of strange coincidence is that, that your sexual lifestyle has to do with your theology? It's because you can't do this and believe this. So instead of repenting of this, I've got to throw this in the trash can. If you're doubting Christianity, ask yourself why. Is it because I really don't want to follow these rules? Is it because I don't want someone telling me what to do with my life? You need to, if you're skeptical of Christianity and you put it under a microscope and examine it, that's good. Because I know it can hold up. But take your beliefs and your doubts and put them under the microscope as well. And say, is there a reason, do I have an ulterior motive to walk away from Christianity? This is Thomas Nagel. He's a professor of philosophy and law emeritus at New York University. He's one of the most world's outspoken atheists. And this is what he said. And he's, I really give him credit for his honesty. In regard to the fear of religion, he's not, not talking about fear of like bad religion, but that religion could be true. I speak from experience being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't that I just don't believe in God and naturally I hope that I'm right in my belief. It is that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. It's being honest. And that most atheists, if they're honest with you, will say, it's not that they've seen all the evidence and know, they know there's not a God. It's that they want their evidence to be true because if there is a God, their life must change. Their beliefs must change. Their heart must change. So be skeptical, but be skeptical of your skepticism as well. Remember, it's not about adopting the right philosophy. I'm not here to persuade you to become religious or adopt what I believe. It's not about that. It's about a person. It's about connecting with a person who is alive, his name is Jesus. He is alive. And one of the things we know about God, we, the big three O's, right? He is omnipresent, he is omniscient, he's omnipotent. He can do anything, he can be anywhere, he knows everything. But one of those is he's omnipresent. That means he's here. That means when you get in your car to drive away today, he's there. 
And there's nowhere that you can go that he's not there. So if he's a living person, then he can hear you anywhere. Imagine there was a curtain, and you and I were discussing whether there's a person hiding behind the curtain. And I'm like, hey, there's someone behind the curtain. I've seen evidence. I've seen the curtain move. I've even seen what looked like a hand pressing forward. I've seen lots of evidence that there's someone behind the curtain. And you can say, oh, there's, I don't think there's anybody behind the curtain. You know, how do you know? Have you seen this person? No, I haven't seen it, but I've seen evidence that tells me there's a person behind the curtain. What's the most scientific way, without opening the curtain, of knowing whether there's someone behind the curtain? Ask. You could walk up to the curtain and say, hey, uh, Jesus, are you behind there? And he could say, yes, I'm behind here. You know, And you'll see me shortly. I'm coming again. But I know that sounds like a quaint illustration, but here's what I'm asking you to do. Ask. You could pray a prayer like, Jesus, I do not know if you're real or not. I have lots of reasons to doubt Christianity. I have lots of people who have hurt me because of Christianity. And I don't know if I want this to be true. But if you're real, would you make yourself known to me? I challenge you to pray that prayer in the privacy of your own time and and see if God doesn't answer that prayer. Number five lesson for Mary here is salvation is, is of grace when Jesus seeks you out and calls your name. Has he done that for you? Luke 19.10 says the whole reason Jesus came was to seek and to save those who are lost. For Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. It is not the result of works. God's not asking you to be a perfect person. He's, you cannot be saved by doing works. You're simply saved by what he did on the cross. He calls it a gift. A gift. When someone gives you a gift, what do you need to do to make it yours? You simply receive it. You don't pull money out of your pocket. You don't you know, get on Venmo and you don't tap your card. You don't do any of those things. It's not because you've done so many wonderful things. It's a free gift that God gives. Have you personally received the gift of grace of Christ on the cross? Hope is alive. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that Jesus truly is alive. Thank you for the life of Mary. If anybody was too far gone to ever become a Christian, it was Mary. But you loved even her. Lord, you love us. We're a lot like Mary, more than we want to admit. And Father, my prayer is if there's someone today watching online or here in person who has never trusted Christ, I pray they would do so today. And we thank you for Easter that it's true. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you made a decision to trust Christ, I'd love to know about it. If you still have questions, you can text me and ask me, and I would love to talk to you about that. We're going to do a very quick question and answer session (laughs) because the church went a little bit long today. But um, let's see. Ashley, would you like to help me with that? And we already have enough questions for today, so I'm not going to take any more if you don't don't text them. And you can still text me, and I can answer them directly with you via text later. Uh, When we get to heaven, can I touch Jesus' scars? I believe yes. If, if Thomas and the disciples could, I don't know the reason why not. You probably have heard this before, but the only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars on Jesus' body. Nothing else man-made will be in heaven. Great question. If any of the alternative theories about the death of Jesus were correct, how would they explain Luke 24, 51 or Acts 1, 9? I don't know what those say. Me either. Corey? Oh, the, right. the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. So yes, that's a great observation. Not only are there witnesses of him walking the earth. Then there's the, the, the witness of his ascension, which 
the ascension means ascending to his throne, that he's now the king of his kingdom, okay, which is a spiritual kingdom. It will be an earthly kingdom. But yes, the ascension is also another testimony of the resurrection. What is Calvinism and what is the biblical evidence for or against it? Wow. <laughs> you have an hour? Okay, I'll give you the quick answer because we're running late here. So there was a debate between Calvinists and uh, what's commonly called Arminians, but that's not a fair assessment. But anyway, shortly after the, Reserva Re the Reformation, and Calvinism has been reduced to five letters, which is not fair to them because it's much more than that, but it spells TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. I have a big problem with the L and the P. L is limited atonement. Calvinists believe that Christ only died for the elect. But the Bible says in multiple places that Christ died for the sins of who? Oh. The whole world. The whole world. It says it multiple times. So how they get to the point where they say only died for the elect, I don't understand. I, I, I know why they say it, but I don't agree with it. And the perseverance of the saints is that basically Calvin thought that you, you are saved by good works, but only elect are able to be good enough and do good works to be saved because they are the elect. That's, that's, not, that's not accurate either. So Calvinism is the whole idea that they, we, we believe that God is sovereign and that God chose you, and yet you chose him. And which one is true? Both. Calvinism leans so, no, God chose you, you had nothing to do with it. We believe that God is sovereign, but man has free will, and that you must choose also. And so people say, well, how can both be true? I don't know. How can Jesus be 100% God and 100% man? I don't know, but it's true. All right. I think that we have one more, but it's a big one. I'll save it for next okay. week then. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's stand, and if you'll go to the last slide with the scripture. You notice we like to read the Bible here a lot at Revolution Church, but that's okay. Please stay for the icon if you can. Take pictures with the kids. And if you go to the next slide for me, let's read this together from Numbers chapter 6. Join me on verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. Exit stage left for the egg hunt. <laughs>